Good morning. Welcome to Sunday morning, Super Bowl Sunday, where we take a 60-minute football game and turn it into four hours of entertainment. We should do that this morning, I think. Every time I make a point, right, I have a lot to say this morning. Every time I make a point, I want you to stand up and give it that cheer, and then we're going to go out of six minutes of commercials. <laughs> kind of like that one right there. I'll get in trouble for that comment. I'm John Hattenberger, uh, one of the elders and pastor of discipleship, and it's my pleasure this morning to bring you God's Word. We're continuing in our series in Jeremiah chapter 29, <clears throat> just as a little bit of background for those of you who may have joined us uh, this morning for the first time. The background is that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched into the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, took all the Jews captive, and uh, most of them, and took them off to Babylon. And so they were in exile for quite a long period of time. We'll come back to how, many, how long in just a moment. Um, and Jeremiah uh, is a basically a letter from the prophet Jeremiah to the people in exile. Now, this exile was no accident. It was, wasn't a random act of war. It was God's punishment for the nation. They had basically rejected the true God and began to worship other false gods, and God had warned them if they did that, this would happen, and so they went off into exile. And so uh, this letter, uh, chapter 29 of Jeremiah, is, is mostly a letter from Jeremiah to the exiles to encourage them and give them some instructions. And so far, in the past few weeks, uh, this is what we've covered in Jeremiah's letter. The first point is that uh, he advised them to settle in, uh, build houses, get married, have families. Uh, it was going to be a while. Secondly, he told them, encouraged them to pray, pray for the city of Babylon and work for its welfare. And then thirdly, he told them uh, not to listen to the false prophets who were likely to tell them that their exile period would be short and that God would return them to Jerusalem quickly because it was not the case. And so that brings us this morning to Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. And so we're going to cover two verses this morning, 10 and 11, and then we'll take a little detour into the New Testament and, and come back into Jeremiah. But if you've got a Bible, turn it to Jeremiah 29, 10, where it says this. It says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, this place being Jerusalem, their home. And so God had told the people that their exile was going to last 70 years. Now, 70 years is a long time. It's roughly the lifespan of a man or a woman. Uh, and so it was basically an entire generation uh, would stay in exile for that 70-year period. But God said it would be a, a finite period of time, a long period of time, but it's not forever. God was punishing them, but he wasn't abandoning them. And, but God wanted them to know, at least to have an idea of how long it was going to be. So the question is, did God deliver on this promise? Did He deliver them out of exile within the 70-year time period? And the answer is yes. Seventy years after they were carried off into Babylon, God raised up another king, a king named Cyrus, who was king of Persia. And he amassed an army and defeated the Babylonian Empire. And shortly after he did so, he issued a decree, a decree that said all the Jews here in Babylon go home. And so they did. They went home, and God delivered on the promise that they would be relieved from their exile within the 70-year period. And then we move on to verse number 11 in Jeremiah 29, which says this, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Jeremiah 29, 11 is probably one of the most quoted verses in the book of Jeremiah, and you can go to any bookstore and you can buy it in a coffee cup or on a bumper sticker or you can have it printed on a t-shirt. Uh, anywhere you want to plaster this, you can do so, and so it's quite a popular verse. It's popular mostly because it tells us a lot about the character of God. It tells us that God's character is that He cares for His people, that He, he has plans for them and will carry them out, and that He, he gives hope and has a future. And those are the four things that we see in this verse. We see that God basically says He has plans for Judah. These plans for Judah is for Judah's well-being, for their prosperity, for their happiness, that God's plans for Judah are good and not evil, and that God's plans are to give them a future and a hope. And it reflects very clearly on God's character. Now, God's character doesn't change. The same character that, that gave this, this uh, prediction through, through Jeremiah to the to the people in exile, he's the same God that we have today, the same God we worship this morning, and God's character hasn't changed. But when we come to this verse, we have to be just a little bit careful, because chapter 29, verse 11, is a promise that God made to a specific people at a specific point in time. He made it to uh, the Jews in exile in Babylon about 2,600 years ago. Now, the reason I'm cautioning you is simply because there are some people out there who would like to take this verse out of context and say, aha, this verse applies to me today as a modern-day Christian. We have to be careful. Those people that, that they spread this thing called uh, this wealth, uh, wealth and prosperity gospel look at this verse and say, aha, see, God has promised to make us wealthy and happy, and it's just not the case. So be careful with that. Now, just because this is a specific promise to a specific people doesn't mean that we can't take the principles and apply them because there is a verse in the New Testament that is essentially a parallel verse which describes God's character in much the same way. And that verse that I'm going to talk about a little bit time, for time this morning is Romans 8.28. Many of you will know this, uh, this by heart. This verse is in the New Testament and applies specifically to New Testament Christians, and so we don't have to worry about whether this is a promise for us or not. It is. It's directed right at us. Romans 8.28, which says in the, in the English Standard Version, says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So like Jeremiah 29, 11, it talks a bit about the character of God, and it's directed right at us. And what I want to do is I want to talk about Romans 8, 28 for the bulk of my time this morning, we'll come back to Jeremiah 29 at the end if it's okay. So what exactly does Romans 8, 28 say? Well, it says, it says four things. It says, God works all things together for good for Christians. Okay? God works all things together for good for Christians. The first is that God works. God is an active God. He's not a passive God. He's actively involved in the intimate details of our lives on a daily basis. If we were to look at the other versions of this verse, for example, in the New International Version or in the North New American Standard, we'd see this described a little the same verse, but just described a little differently. In, this, in, the, in those versions, the, 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 the subject is God, and the verb is works. And so the NIV says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His good purpose. And so you see the very active verb there. And in, in, in the New American Standard, it says very similar. It says, God causes all things to work together for good. And the point is, is that God works. God is very active. He takes the initiative. He's not passive. He, he makes things happen. He controls. He acts. 
And it's not the case that what happens in this world is, is, is a result of some, some chance or some coincidence or, or just by, by fate or by accident. God makes things happen. Now, secondly, God works all things together. All things. And what we mean by things, I like to call stuff. It's things that happen in our lives, things that come along that we don't expect or that we do expect, but they just happen. And I call that stuff. And, and this verse says that God works all stuff, not just some of the stuff. So it means he works the good stuff as well as the bad stuff. We have things that happen in our lives that are difficult, that are, that are horrible, some things that are tragic. There are things, there's stuff in our life that happens that, that is close to us and some of that is far away. Some things that we never even know take place. Things that happened in our past, things that happened today, things that happened in our future, and even after we're dead. And so the verse basically says that God works all stuff, good stuff and bad stuff, past, present, and future. And the third thing is that God works all stuff together for good, for our good. It doesn't say that all stuff is good, but it says God works all that together for good, for our good. And then fourthly, God works all stuff together for good for Christians. This verse doesn't apply to everybody in the world. It applies to Christians. And the way we know that is because it says very clearly, it says that this applies for those who, what, who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Now, that's not two separate groups of people. That isn't sort of a group of people who love God on the one hand and a group of people who are called according to God's purpose on the other hand. No, it really applies to one group of people, and we call them Christians. Christians are people who have trusted and placed their faith in Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and by believing in Him, they can be saved. And this verse is simply a reflection of the fact that that group of people we call Christians love God and are called according to His purpose. And so the point is very simple, is that this verse, again, can't be taken out of context. It applies to Christians, not to non-Christians. So Romans 8.28 is our modern-day equivalent of Jeremiah 29.11, and basically says that God works all stuff together for good for Christians. Now, for Christians, this verse is a wonderful promise, and that is an understatement. It is a wonderful promise. It is a huge encouragement to Christians. Because last time I checked, we weren't immune to the stuff that can hit us in this life. And we get hit by a lot of stuff. Many of our lives are messy. In fact, all of our lives are messy. Some are just messier than others. And this verse is a huge encouragement. It enables us to endure unbelievable hardships, unbelievable sadness, unbelievable grief, unbelievable tragedy. Because we know that there's a purpose to those things, that God is working those things for our good. It gives, gives us purpose. He prevents us from, from becoming hopeless or thinking that this life is just meaningless, a meaningless string of bad stuff that keeps happening to me. And so for Christians, this is a great encouragement. Now, for some people, unfortunately, it's not. For some people, instead of being an encouragement, this verse is a problem. It's a stumbling block. For some people, it goes something like this. They say, well wait a minute, if God works all things for my good, then why do I have so many problems in my life? Stuff's going wrong all the time in my life. The brakes just went out of my car. My son's feeling algebra, and i got to go talk to the teacher again. 
I just lost my job. All my savings are gone, and the roof is leaking. So I'm sorry, God, but where's the good in all of that? And so for people that have that view, this verse is not an encouragement at all. It's a poke in the eye with a sharp stick, and it produces cynicism and produces bitterness. And the question is, why? Why does that happen? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why. I think it relates to a couple of the problems. One is that we have a slightly different version or a slightly different definition of what good is. And secondly, it might be caused by the fact that we don't get to see the good that results from the stuff. So let's talk about those one at a time quickly. The first problem is that we have a different idea about what good means. In this verse, good means as God defined it. Unfortunately, we don't get to decide what good is. God does. God works all the stuff for our good. But it says God defines good. And so sometimes we have a different idea about what that means. Why is that? Well, that's because God is God and we are not. Our ideas are not God's ideas. Our ideas, thoughts are not God's thoughts. And so we might have a slightly different view on that. But we have to remember that when God works all this stuff for good, it's God's definition of good, not ours. Now, we can see this same problem uh, in our own lives, particularly around our children, particularly when it comes around time to discipline or punish our children. For example, if you've got a teenage son and he has a 12 o'clock curfew and he comes home at 1 o'clock and you uh, you ground him for a week for doing that, guess what? There's two things going on there and none of it's very much fun. A curfew and grounding to your son is not good. But you as a parent know it is good. You know that a curfew is good for your son because why? Because nothing very healthy happens after midnight. And you know that grounding him is good for him because it develops discipline and it develops the idea that you have rules in life and he's going to have to learn those things. And so for you as a parent, you recognize grounding and this curfew are good, but your son, they're bad. And you can't convince him otherwise. Until he grows up and has his own teenagers. But it's a little bit like that with God. And God has a different perspective on the whole thing. God knows what's really good for us. He knows that sometimes stuff is going to happen in our lives that isn't going to feel particularly good. But God's going to work it for us, our good anyway. But that brings up the question, then what is God's definition of good? If it's not mine, what's his? Let's hear it. Come on, let's get it. Well, our Bible is full of commands and instructions about what we're to do and what we're not to do, all kinds of things that we should do, things that we shouldn't do, character traits that we should adopt, ways that we should act. And those are all good. But I think in the very next verse in Romans 8, I think there's a very clear description of what God wants for us. And so if we just went one more verse, Romans 8, 29, which follows immediately after Romans 8, 28, it says, For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So He's he's carrying on. He's having a description of what it means to be a Christian. But right in the middle of this, He has this phrase, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Because Christians are predestined, predestined in the sense that God has determined our destiny beforehand. And He's told us what our destiny is, is to be conformed to to the image of His Son. And I like to say that what that means is that God wants us to become more and more like Jesus every day. 
And so I think that's a, a pretty good definition of what God means by good. And so God works all the stuff in our lives for our good, that is, so that we become more and more like Jesus. And while we don't have a direct line of sight to that ourselves sometimes, and we're like, how do I become more and more like Jesus? Well, God's got a good idea about that. And we should be quite thankful that the God of the universe is doing this and not us. So that's the first problem. Our definition of good isn't often the same as God's. And then perhaps the second problem is that because we're not God, we don't always get to see the good things that result. God works all things for good, but sometimes we don't get to see the connection between the stuff that happens and the good that God works. Well, why is that? Why don't we get to see that? Well, the answer is because we're not God. Unlike God, where we can't see everything, we can't see the future, we don't know everything, we, we don't see all the events that take place around the universe, we don't control the universe, but God does, and God understands how each event impacts every other event. So maybe the question is, or at least the question I have, is how does this actually work? How does God work all these, these, this stuff for our good? Well, I'll tell you, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But I think it might go something like this, so bear with me for just a minute. Imagine that you have an SUV, and you're driving your SUV down the road with your wife and your children in the back seat, and behind your SUV, you're pulling a boat because you're taking your family to the lake to go boating. And you're driving along, and it's a hot day, and everything's going on fine, and all of a sudden, boom, flubba, 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 flubba. We all know what that means, right? The flubba, flubba, flubba means you got a flat tire, right? Everybody knows that. So you pull over to the side of the road. It's a hot day. You park. You try to get out of the traffic. You got to unhitch the boat in order to get the jack up the truck, and you and you change the tire, and you put the tire on. You jack it all down. You got to hitch the boat back up again. By then, you're hot. You're sweaty. You're covered in grease from the tire and dirt, and you climb back in the car and you go, "Crud!" Now we're an hour behind schedule. And you go, "Hmm, how did God work that tire for my good?" Because a flat tire is one of the stuff that happens to us, right? And you say, I got that one nailed. That's easy. I got on, I changed the tire on my SUV, and my wife was watching, and my kids were watching. And in the future, they're going to have to change a tire. They're going to get stranded on the side of the road, and this is going to be further good. They're going to know how to change the tire, and everything's good. And besides that, I might get a little irritated, but I was patient. And God was working on my character. That's the good that came out of that flat tire. And I think, you know, I don't know for sure, but I think God sort of looks down on that and he sort of shakes his head and says, you have no idea. Because, God says, you got that flat tire because 30 seconds after your tire blew out, a half a mile down the road, a truck went through a red light and plowed into the car that was immediately behind you. And if you hadn't gotten that flat tire and pulled over to the side, that truck would have hit you. Now you say, wow, now I understand why I got that flat tire. And God looks down and he says, you have no idea. Because the guy that got creamed by the truck is a Christian too, and his name is Bob Johnson. And he got badly injured in that wreck. And he went to the hospital. They took him there in an ambulance. And on his way there, the EMS technician, he called his wife on, their, on her cell phone. She was in her car on the other side of town going somewhere else. And she got the phone call and said, your husband's just been in a bad wreck. Meet us down at the hospital. And so she hustles down there. And he goes into emergency surgery, Bob does. 
And they fix him all up, but he has to stay in the hospital and recover for about three weeks. And so every single day, Bob's wife drives down there and she sits with him. And when he's sleeping and recovering, she's praying for him. She's praying for him. And when he wakes up, they pray together. And three weeks later, he's okay and he gets out and he goes home. And on the drive home from the hospital, his wife says, Bob, I got to tell you. You know, I got the call from the EMS technician. I was in my car, and he told me to come meet you at the, at, the, at the hospital. Do you know where I was going? He said, no. She said, I was driving downtown to see a lawyer about a divorce. He said, what? And she said, but honey, listen. All that time I prayed for you in the hospital, all that time changed my mind entirely. I love you more than ever, and I want to save our marriage. Bob goes, wow, now I know why that truck creamed me. God says, Bob, you have no idea. Because at midnight, on the second week when you were in there, this nurse came in to take your vital signs, and you woke up, and you were kind of groggy, and she looked at your chart, and she said, Bob Johnson. I wonder if that's the same Bob Johnson I went to high school with. Her name was Wanda Watson. And Wanda woke up, Bob, and took his vital signs and says, Are you the same Bob Johnson with such and such high school back in 19 such and such? She goes, Yeah, yeah. You remember me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, what have you been doing since high school? And Bob said, Oh, well, the best thing that happened to me is I, I came to trust in Jesus when I was in college. And Wanda goes, uh, Whatever, and she walks out of the room. And three years later, Wanda Watson heard the gospel for the 10th time. And on the 10th time, she remembered the conversation he had with Bob Johnson in the hospital. She trusted in Jesus and became a Christian. Now you're thinking, aha, I know why I got the flat tire. I got the flat tire so I wouldn't miss that accident. So Bob Johnson would get in the accident so he would save his marriage and Wanda Watson would get saved, right? And God looks down and he goes, you have no idea. And it just keeps going. Now, that's how I think it might work. But I'm not sure. And I have the sneaky feeling that right now, God is in heaven looking down here going, John, you got no idea. <laughs> anyway, that's the second problem. Often we don't get the chance to see the connection between the stuff that happens and the good that God works for it. And sometimes we get a little bit of a glimpse and sometimes we don't. And, but sometimes people get stuck they don't believe that Romans 8.28 works for them. And for those people, it becomes a big, big problem because if you don't believe that Romans 8.28 works for you, it means you've got a God who doesn't fit God's description in our Bibles. You must think that God's not a good God. You have to think that God doesn't care about you. You've got to think that God's not in control, but that's wrong. Our God is a good God. Our God cares for us, and our God is in control, and He loves us, and He works all things, and He wants, he wants the best for us. So He works all the stuff for our good, but He does it for His good, His definition, and He does it His way, and He does it in His timing, and it's good. And if we believe that God is good, and if we believe that God is in control, and if we believe that God loves us, and we believe that God cares for us, and we believe that God works all the stuff that happens in our lives for our good, man, what a blessing that is. So, how do we get to the point where we believe that God will work all things for our good? 
where we get to the point where we have this kind of conversation when something bad happens to us, instead of shaking our fists at God and going, why did that happen? We might say instead, huh, interesting. I wonder how God's going to use this disaster for my good. And we watch for it. Well, I'm not sure about that either, but I think there's one thing that we can do that gets us there, or at least gets us headed on the way to believing that God is good and that He works all things for good to those who love Him and are called according to His good purpose. And I think the answer to that is remember. Remember. There's a guy named Asaph. He wrote one of, at least one of the Psalms. He wrote Psalm 77. Asaph's life was filled with bad stuff. He was a wreck. His life was a mess. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't pray. He felt that God had abandoned him and that his misery would last forever. And in the middle of that, he wrote Psalm 77. And if you had a chance to turn there, you can watch it on the screen. Psalm 77, I'm just picking it up in verse 7. It's Asaph pouring his heart out to God. He says, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable to me? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Does God not love me anymore? Are his promises at an end for all time? Are his promises useless? Are they over? Has he retracted them? Made them null and void? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Does God not even love me anymore? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Does God even care? And so what does Asaph do? Well, carries on in verse 10. It says, Then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And what that means is he's looking backwards in history, and he's looking at what God has done. And he's going to remember. Here it comes. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your works of old. I will ponder all your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. So Asaph was in the middle of this mess. And what did he do? He remembered. He remembered that God was good and that in the past, God had done all these mighty things. And they were good things. And he let that sink in and he remembered and he reminded himself and he pondered it and he meditated on it. And he remembered that God was a good God in the past and it gave him confidence to know that God was going to work all stuff for his good in the future too. And one of the best ways to remember One of the best ways to remember God's goodness is to tell stories about God. If Asaph was here, he'd have a great story to tell us, I think. I'm getting older. Guess what? We're all getting older. I'm just a little bit further ahead than some of you. But one of the the few benefits of getting older, one of the few, there's a few, but not too many. One of the few benefits of getting older is you get to accumulate more stories as you go. And so, my wife and I have got a lot of stories, but I want to tell one story about God this morning, if you'll allow me, and if I can make it through, that'll be a good thing. Uh, They had to bring in the mops at the earlier service, and we still got a little bit of salty tears, but we'll see if we can get through this this morning. It's a good story. It has a good ending. Many of you will know that my daughter, Jocelyn, uh, is a single mom. She's never been married. She's... uh, foster mom. She's on number 16, I believe. Uh, but anyway, she's got three adopted children, Adrian, Soraya, and Tiger. And 
They're eight years old and seven years old. Uh, Adrian and Sarai are eight, Tiger seven. So this took place eight years ago, the story I'm about to tell you. Adrian, little guy, uh, he was addicted to cocaine when he was born. For nine months in his mother's womb, he did cocaine. Because his mother was an addict, and she was doing cocaine right up to the delivery room. And so the day he was born, he was addicted. That's not a good way to start life. It's tough enough being a baby and coming out of where you've been for nine months and going, whoa, to be on drugs at the same time. And so the first eight days of Adrian's life, he spent in the hospital going through horrible withdrawal symptoms from the cocaine. Not a good way to start life. On the eighth day, he was well enough to get out of the hospital, and CPS placed Adrian in my daughter's home. She was living in an apartment at the time, and she was licensed to have uh, two foster kids. And so uh, she, she uh, took Adrian in, and we loved him as well as we could, despite the withdrawal he continued to go through. And it was all pretty good. And then about three months later, she got her second foster child, whose name was Soraya. Uh, and she was three months old, and she wound up in CPS's care because she had 24 broken bones, and it wasn't because she fell down the stairs. And so she joined, and Jocelyn had the two in her apartment. And she was loving on them, and we had a great time, and it was, it was fun. Challenging, but fun. Well, a year later, stuff happened. Stuff happened with Adrian, which was really hard. A judge issued a decree, an order, and signed it and said, Adrian is going back to his family now. And so CPS came over, and they took Adrian, little one-year-old guy that we'd had for a whole year, and he left. And that was not easy. We said goodbye, and we believe you're saying goodbye to him forever. And it was bad. It was not only bad that they were taking him out of our home, we'd loved him for a full year, but we all knew that that was a terrible, terrible decision. And sending him back to that family where his addictive mother was still there was going to be a tragedy. But there wasn't much we could do. We grieved. We couldn't really check on him. We prayed like crazy that God would protect him, and we grieved. And we could not imagine how God was going to work that for our good. Well, a few weeks went by, and Jocelyn got another foster baby, and then another, and then another, and then another, and another, and she always had just two at a time, of course, because she was only licensed for two in her apartment, and so they would come in, she'd stay two weeks, or a month, or two months, or six months, or whatever, and then they'd be adopted by somebody else, or they'd be placed with another family member, an aunt, or a grandmother, uh, and everything was okay, and so fast forward a year, and uh, Soraya stayed because her court system was working really, really slow, so she hid Soraya, but she kept having this other position, this, the two that she was licensed for, um, different child each time. And so over time, it made sense uh, for us. Karen and I decided to help Jocelyn financially because she had an outside job and it was difficult to be a single mom in the first place, but to be a single mom for these kids who had special needs. And so anyway, we decided to help her financially and we encouraged her to quit her outside job so she could spend her time full-time on taking care of foster babies. And that was a, a good decision, although one of her parents was a little bit reluctant. Um, but she wanted to have more than two kids, and she, if you know my daughter, you know that she can take care of dozens at a time, and, uh, but she was only licensed to have two. And so a year later, she's got uh, Soraya, who's two years old at the time, and then uh, 
uh, Tiger, who was about one, they were still in the apartment. And so we talked about it, and we decided, one of us reluctantly, I won't tell you which one, reluctantly decided to buy her a house, a small house just down here in Town Ball, where she could be not licensed for two, but be licensed for four. Then when she, she'd get more kids. So we did that, and uh, God's blessed us. That was not a financial burden, although I was reluctant to do so. And so we closed on the house, and we moved her stuff in from the apartment, and she's got the two little rugrats running around on the floor, uh, Sarai and Tiger, and she's filling out the paperwork to get licensed for four so she can take more kids. And the boxes are still there, and the kids are running around, and she's not quite moved in. She gets a phone call. She gets a phone call from CPS. And it's a woman at CPS that she hadn't spoken to for a year. And it happened to be Adrian's caseworker. And she said, Jocelyn, um, this is so-and-so. Uh, we had to go in and take Adrian back again. It was bad. Now, you were the first person I thought of, she said. And I'm calling you. I know you're only licensed for two, and I know you got two, so you can't take another one. But I'm just wondering, is there any way that you could possibly get licensed for another one or two? And would you be interested in taking Adrian back in your home? My daughter said, seriously? I'm just filling out the paperwork right now to get licensed for four. And she says, well, we can speed that up. <laughs> and the next day, Adrian comes back in the home. God doesn't do coincidences. It was no coincidence that suddenly she became available to have more than two, two foster kids on the very day that Adrian got taken into foster care again, in the CPS again, and it got delivered there. There's no, that, that's not a coincidence. I'm sorry, you can't convince anybody of that. Adrian got taken away, and he was gone for a whole year, and it was tough. That was stuff. But God worked it for good, and, and we saw a little bit, I think, of the good that God worked that into. Because you see, I think God had it in mind that Jocelyn would, would adopt three kids, but she had an apartment that was only allowed for two. And so she couldn't get Adrian and Sarai and Tiger into the apartment. It was too many. So God took Adrian out and put Tiger in. And then when she finally got a house, because her dad was really slow, a year later, there was room for her to move him back in. Why didn't I buy that house sooner? But we all learned some lessons, right? All the doubts I had about helping my daughter financially and buying her a house, I look like a total moron. Why did I wait a year to be convinced of that? All my doubts were gone. Jocelyn's decision to devote her entire life to working full-time to help these foster kids was confirmed in a major way. God's, God's goodness showed up in bright lights, and our faith went up in gigantic amounts. And every time I tell this story, God shines, doesn't he? And so today, Karen and Jocelyn and I, we walk around, we go, yeah. 
I see the good that God worked from that. God's looking down at us and shaking his head and going, you have no idea. But keep telling that story. Ah, I'll tell you, it's uh, when you get to see a little bit of the good that God works from the stuff that takes place, it makes it all worthwhile. Unfortunately, sometimes we don't get to see all of it. In fact, sometimes we don't get to see any of it. Sometimes it doesn't turn out the way we want it to, even in our entire lifetime. And all we can do then is trust God to know that in those times, He's going to work it all out. But somehow, even though we don't see it, but trust God to know that He's a good God. And He works all things for our good. Now, sometimes, as I say, we don't, we don't get to see all the stuff that God does, but in the very details of our lives, we don't get to see that. But I can tell you that if you step back at the 30,000-foot view for a minute, you can look around and you can say, yeah, you know, but wait a minute, what is God's ultimate good for us? Where is this all headed? And the fact of the matter is that God has made that perfectly crystal clear to us. And that even though we don't get to see the details of the stuff that takes place on a day-to-day basis and how God's working all this stuff for good, the overall piece of good that God does for us is very clear. It's crystal clear. The big picture, when it comes to the big picture, we see the big picture, but not the details. We can see God's overall plan, but not the details. We can see see the best good thing that God has in mind for Christians, but we don't get to see the details. And it takes us back to Jeremiah 29, where the Jews are in exile and they want to go home. But guess what? We're just like the Jews. We're in exile. We live here on this earth, but this is not our home, is it? Heaven is our home, and if you're like me, you long to go there. And the best possible good that God has in mind for us, and He works all things for good, is that He's going to come back and He's going to take us there. Jesus is coming back, and He's going to grab us by the hand, and He's going to say, let's go home. It's crystal clear. And the, the Apostle John, in Revelation, he even gives us a description of what that home is going to look like. And in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, which you can follow on the screen and just listen to my voice. It says, Then I, this is John speaking of the vision that he saw. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And we don't get to see the details of how we get there, but that's where we're going. Jesus said, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to that place. God is a good God. And he works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, what a pleasure it is to... Every now and then see the way that you work all things for our good. Lord, I know we don't have the right to ask to see it all the time, but when we see it, oh God, it makes you shine. 
And we praise you, Lord God, for the ways in which you work. We praise you that you work all things for our good. We praise you that you love us, that you care for us, that you're actively involved in the events in our lives, that you see the whole clear picture. And Lord God, we hold Romans 8.28 to heart and know that life is not meaningless, that even though we bump into stuff and stuff happens to us and tragic things and difficult things and sad things, and we grieve and we moan and we groan and we gripe, and it's horrible, we know, Lord God, that even those things, Lord God, have purpose and that you're using them in some way for our good. Lord, you are a good God. You are a good God. We lift your name on high today for who you are. We pray all these things in the powerful name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.